you would, please turn with me to John chapter 19. Who is Jesus? When we started this series over a year ago, August of 2015, that was, that was the question I wanted us to, to answer. I felt like, I think it's true that the identity of the church is rooted in that question. Who is Jesus? And so for my first series as a pastor, as the pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and I guess my first series as a, a real pastor, um, it, seemed, it seemed like that question was the good one to go after. Who is Jesus? And that's not only an important question for the church. It's not only an important question for people who would call themselves Christians. It's actually, at least according to John, an important question for every person who has ever and who will ever live. Who do you say Jesus is? And that has been the question that we have strived to answer over the past year. Because here at Grace Fellowship, we have this profound conviction that what we need is not steps. What we need is not a list. What we need is not a moral pick-me-up. You can get all of those things when you go to Books a Million, even in their religion section. Most of it is glorified self-help. No, we have the profound conviction here that what we need most is a deeper, better understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and why that radically transforms everything else. And that as we understand Him and as we know Him and as we draw closer to Him, that all of those other things that are important, how you parent, how you live, how you talk with other people, all those things, those are important, but they find their deep-rootedness in that question, who is Jesus? And so that's been the way that we have pursued this series over the past year, especially now as we come to this, probably the most important moment in the book. Um, all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote more time to Jesus' so-called passion, that's what it's been called historically throughout the years, Jesus' crucifixion, than any other part of his life. And that is because the cross is the cross is the work of Jesus, or it's the culmination of the work of Jesus. It is its climax, its highest point. And so it's interesting, the irony, that the lowest moment of Jesus' life, the lowest point of his humiliation, is actually the highest point of his earthly ministry. Not only that, but it's the center point of, of Christian life, that the cross is the moment, is the place where our new identity begins. And so hopefully we'll unpack some of those things today as we read through John 19, starting in verse 16. If you haven't been with us, just to catch you up to speed, Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been interrogated by his own people, by the Jewish authorities. They got the charge that they wanted. Um, he's innocent of those charges, but... They now take him to Pilate, uh, the Roman governor, so that they can get permission to execute him. Uh, Pilate, after putting up some resistance, has to cave to their political manipulation. 
And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to each other, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. God in heaven, would you grant spiritual insight now as we give attention to your word? Pray, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts to understand what is going on here in the crucifixion of Jesus, what it means for the world, what it means for us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we all love to finish well. We all love a job well done. I think most of us would feel, feel very discontent, very uneasy about an unfinished job, about a job that's not well done. And so... We know something of, uh, of the satisfaction of what it means to say it's finished, right? Well, most of us, especially if you've entered the working world, we don't get that satisfaction very often. What you lay down on Friday, you have to pick back up on Monday. But 
You know those moments, those projects maybe that you've been working on for long hours, they finally come to fruition, or when you finally cross the finish line at a race that you've been preparing for, or just when you finish mowing the grass, right? To be able to say it is finished brings deep relief, deep satisfaction, but there's a whole lot more going on behind Jesus saying it is finished, Yes, Jesus is finishing his job. He finishes the job that his father has sent him to do. But there's, there's, a, lot, there's a much deeper well that needs to be plumbed there. And so we're going to look at what it means, um, what, what Jesus means when he says it is finished. And here's what we're going to see in the main, that Jesus finishes the work of salvation by bearing the shame and guilt we deserve. I mean, we look at the cross, uh, and especially maybe if you're, if you're coming to this scene from outside, of, from outside of the church, if you haven't grown up in the church, if you're not familiar with Christianity, um, maybe you've only just heard some things about Jesus, what a good man he was, and this, this seems like a tragic waste. Why in the world does a good man need to be executed, and executed in such an awful way, and, and why in the world do these strange people called Christians celebrate this? Why is this awful moment in history something that we celebrate, something that we put on our walls and something that we hang around our necks and tattoo on our skin? What in the world is wrong with us? And so we need to talk about this, that, that, that this moment, uh, this crucifixion moment, Uh, is Jesus finishing his work. And the work is bearing my shame and your shame. The work is paying for my guilt and your guilt. That's what's happening in the crucifixion. And so what we're going to see first is that Jesus finishes the work in the face of extreme humiliation. That's exactly what... What this is, from beginning to end, this is shameful and humiliating. I find it interesting that if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these four men who tell the story of Jesus, you will not find a detailed description of crucifixion. In fact, what we know about the Roman practice of crucifixion, we know primarily from other history books. We don't get it from the Bible because the gospel writers don't spend a lot of time teasing out the details. And one reason that is is probably because they already were familiar with it. um, The New Testament was written to people who lived in the Roman Empire. And so if they hadn't seen a crucifixion, they were at least familiar with a crucifixion. But here's what would happen. Um, Jesus, at the moment that... At the moment that Pilate issues the sentence, at the moment that Pilate condemns Jesus to death, uh, Jesus would have been sent away, and we know this from other gospel writers, Jesus would have been sent away and scourged. Now, he's already been flogged. Pilate already had him beaten once. And that was kind of a lighter punishment, hoping to kind of get the Jews, satisfy the Jews, set Jesus free, and it didn't work. And so now Jesus is scourged. And that would have involved a leather whip uh, with, with fringes on the end of it uh, that had pieces of, of wood, metal, bone, rock, right? And they would have lashed 
Jesus' body. And those, those little tails would have, of course, wrapped themselves into his flesh, dug in, and then they pulled the whip back out and, of course, tearing flesh with it. And so after a crucifixion, victim was scourged. They're bleeding. Um, in some cases, you can see internal organs. Uh, that is, that, that's what happens before you even get to the cross. Uh, and then the crossbeam is put on the shoulders of the condemned, and he is paraded through the streets. All of this is a testimony to his shame. He is being paraded as a convicted criminal, and he is being paraded to terrify other people from doing the same. And so it was with Jesus. He bore his crossbeam out through, through the city, out to the hill just outside the city where the vertical beam would have waited. And then when he got there, he would have been hoisted up onto it. Um, sometimes victims' hands were simply tied to the crossbeam. Others, in, uh, in Jesus' case, they were nailed. Uh, nailed to the crossbeam, and then once he was hoisted into place, nailed through the feet. And sometimes they, they built a little wooden shelf there at the bottom just under the feet because the way, the way that you die in crucifixion is uh, through suffocation, uh, that you can no longer support the weight of your body, and so um, your lungs, you can't get a good deep breath, and you eventually asphyxiate, right? You have more CO2 in your body than what you can handle, and you die. Up until that moment, your involuntary reaction is to continue to try to grab a deep breath by pulling yourself up. And so the Romans would prolong this torture by creating a little wooden shelf at the bottom under the feet so that the victim had a place to be able to stand up on. If that wasn't there, they would have died a whole lot sooner. And so you can imagine the agony that Jesus is feeling. Jesus does not die a hero's death. He is not marching triumphantly out into battle to meet his demise. No, he is, he is shamed and he is mocked. I think part of the reason that the details of crucifixion aren't shared is also the same reason why if a, if a first century Roman citizen were to step foot in our homes, if your house has crosses decorating the walls, or if they were to step foot into this church building and see depictions of the cross, they would be, they would be revolted. They would be astonished. They would, why in the world do you, I mean, it's, it's equivalent, I think I've said this before, it would be equivalent to posting an electric chair, um, to having pictures of the electric chair everywhere. That would be really strange. You wouldn't want to talk to people who did that. Um, and that's what this would have meant for a first century Roman citizen, if you knew someone who was crucified, or God forbid, a member of your family was crucified, well, it was tantamount to, dare we say, a convicted child molester. You don't want to talk about it. You don't mention it. It's shameful. We don't bring it up. It's not public knowledge. Or if it is, we just try to hide it away. That's what's going on with Jesus' crucifixion. It's horrific. It's painful and it's humiliating. And those who receive that punishment, well, you just didn't talk about it. But the physical details that make us 
squirm are not what the gospel writers highlight. They don't write those. They don't really even mention them. Just look at the economy of John's words. All he says is, they crucified him. Just one word in the Greek. The physical details of what's going on really aren't the point. The point of the whole scene is that Jesus is bearing the shame and guilt of his people. Really, the point of the whole scene is not the fact that Jesus is about to be and is physically tortured in one of the most horrendous ways that human, humans have ever devised. The point of the story is that Jesus is being separated uh, from the love of the Father. He is becoming an object of wrath. That's how the New Testament explains the crucifixion of Jesus. That what Jesus is doing is not an example. It's not exemplary in that sense, like what a noble man. That ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's doing something you can't do. He's doing something I can't do. He is bearing the weight of his people's sin, and he is bearing the wrath of his Father, of a holy God, against sin. So the scourging and the beating and the bleeding and the suffocating, those are all just physical markers of the spiritual reality that Jesus is the sacrifice that must pay for sin. Look at the title that Pilate has affixed to the cross it wasn't uncommon that you would put a person's charge, especially if they were going to be uh, executed in such a public way, you would write the charge out and you would put it on the cross so that everybody would know this is what this person is guilty of. And, and Pilate, really to get back at the Jews, writes, the king of the Jews. And he writes it in Aramaic, the local language. He writes it in Latin the official language of the empire, and he writes it in Greek, the international language of trade and commerce, so that anybody who would see this man hanging on this cross could read, he is the king of the Jews. Pilate does that to mock Jesus. Really, no, Pilate does it to mock the Jewish leaders. They pressured him into this moment, and so he, he does this to really slap them in the face which is why they're angry about it and they want him to take it down and change it. But what Pilate does to mock them, I mean, this is really the last bit of irony here, that what Pilate does, as I like to say, God, God always has the last laugh because what Pilate does is he broadcasts the truth. He broadcasts the truth about Jesus in trilingual trilingual form, so the world can know that Jesus is king. That's what Pilate does. On a deeper, truer level, this plaque proclaims to the whole world that Jesus is king, and he is king on the cross. That's the way to glory, is on the cross. Jesus had said earlier in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus has now been lifted up. And in 
Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, the whole world can be drawn to the lifted up king on the cross. And then below him we see the soldiers gambling for his clothes. This was the right of the soldiers who were overseeing an execution. They had a right to the victim's clothes, his personal effects. And so they've got all of Jesus' stuff there and they're, they're rolling the dice, so to speak. They're casting lots to see who gets what. Even the tunic, um, which was probably the most treasured possession of a Jewish man. It was the one thing he always wore. It could not be torn in pieces. It was all of one piece. And so they have to cast lots to, to see who's going to get it. And you can imagine the humiliation, the shame of this, right? Here's not only, it's not enough that he's beaten and bloodied and suffocating. He's naked. And underneath him, just, I mean, a Roman cross wasn't very high. Seven or eight feet. And so right there at the bottom of his feet, there they are casting lots to see who gets his stuff. Is this, is this what the king of heaven deserves? No. But this is, this is what the king of heaven does. Do you notice it says the, they did this. These men do this to fulfill the scriptures. Even in gambling for Jesus' clothes, they are fulfilling Psalm 22. Why does that matter? Because it reminds us that God is in this. Jesus does not need to take the wheel. Jesus has not let it go. This is the way he must go. This is the way he wants to go. God is in this working out his rescue plan, even to the detail of soldiers casting lots for a cloak. Jesus finishes in the face of extreme humiliation. Jesus finishes in obedience and compassion. Do you notice what happens next? Jesus is there on the cross and some of his disciples are gathered there. John mentions four women and the disciple whom Jesus loved. That would be, we believe, John the Apostle who wrote this book. He's been mentioned in the book before. And they're standing there near the cross. And Jesus looks at his mother. And he, he takes care of his last responsibility. Even, even in dying on the cross, Jesus doesn't stop obeying God. Even, even as he is bleeding out and losing his breath... He is honoring the fifth commandment by honoring his mother and taking care of her. I think most of us would look at at that and say, Hey man, you've done enough. You don't don't worry about that. She's got friends, she's got family, that'll all take care of itself. You know, don't don't worry about that. You've done plenty. No, no, no. Jesus obeys the law to the end. He sees his mother who with His death will be bereaved. She's already a widow. And he takes care of her. He takes care of her need. He looks at the disciple he can trust, John, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Son, there's your mother. So even in death, Jesus is obedient and compassionate. He moves towards people and he does not stop pleasing God. In fact, this is part of finishing the race. 
This is part of finishing the work that God had sent him to do. See, it's not just enough that Jesus bears our guilt on the cross, but he also has to live a perfect life. He has to be the one man who kept every commandment and all of the other commandments that they point to. Jesus not only died a sinner's death, but he lived a perfect life, even down to his last breath, taking care of his mother in compassion for her, honoring this woman. So Jesus finishes in obedience and compassion. And then finally, Jesus finishes his work completely. Jesus says, to fulfill Scripture, Psalm 69, 21, he says, I thirst. Understandably so. Uh, he's, he's naked and bleeding and hanging on the cross in the Middle Eastern sun. Yeah, he's thirsty. But even this, right, he's been in the sun for over six hours. Even this is a fulfillment. The guards keep cheap sour vinegar wine close at hand. The poor people, guards, uh, they usually used a sour wine vinegar diluted with water to quench their thirst. It was cheap, it was effective, and so this is probably what the guards had close by for themselves. As soon as they hear Jesus say, I thirst, they rush over and they, they grab a branch and they fill up a sponge and they, and they stick it up to his mouth. And, and Luke tells us that even this was, was mocking. After all, it just, it's just going to prolong the torture, right? Giving him a little bit of something to drink, parching his thirst. But this too is finishing the job, now fulfilling Psalm 69, 21, where the psalmist is given sour wine by his enemies. And Jesus uses it. And with his thirst quenched, is able to say his last words. It is finished. It is finished. Just one word, one word in the Greek, tetelestai. And it means not simply just to finish something, but to fulfill, to complete, to wrap it all up. When Jesus says it is finished, he doesn't simply mean my life is over. He means, I've done the work I came to do. I've done the work that my Father sent me to do. And in finishing that work, He sets free everyone who has ever believed in the name of Jesus. Jesus finishes His work. And Christian, when Jesus finishes His work, he finishes yours too. When Jesus says it is finished, it means that you can look at the accuser who says, you're guilty, you're vile, God has no place for you in heaven. You can look at him and you can say, it is finished. It is finished because Jesus said it's finished. And if Jesus said it's finished, it's finished. I have nothing more to prove to you. That is what it is finished means. And with that, Jesus gives up his spirit. 
Every other one, every one of us will have our spirit taken from us. We will not get the luxury of giving up our spirits. But even right now, in this moment, Jesus retains complete control. And when he says it's finished, when the work is done, when the Father's wrath is appeased, Jesus, in other Gospels, says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. The rift has been healed. The division between the sinner and the holy God has been healed. The curtain has been torn in two. And Jesus can finally return. Jesus can give up his spirit. That he alone of every man who has ever lived had the privilege to lay his life down when he chose to. And he only lays it down once the work is done and the price is paid. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is the humiliated one. Jesus is the compassionate one. Jesus is the king on the cross. Jesus finishes his work of redemption so that all who trust in him may have eternal life. It's interesting. Jesus here on the cross says it is finished. He doesn't say that at the empty tomb. Right? Because the empty tomb, the resurrection, what will come after this is all the new stuff that happens. But before that can happen, before the new creation can have birth, before the new man can be born, the old man has to die. And the place that the old man dies is at the cross. And so because it is finished, we can be raised to new life. Redemption is accomplished at the cross and then it is applied afterwards. And so we can rejoice as the old hymn does. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in something as awful as the crucifixion. Because it is at the crucifixion, it is at the moment when the Lord of life gives himself over to death and death in such an excruciating way, when the Lord of glory becomes an object of wrath so that I don't have to. So that the penalty of wrath no longer falls to me as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. Oh Lord, we rejoice because at the cross we find our guilt removed. At the cross we find our old man put to death. Oh Lord, I pray 
that as, that as Paul did, we would see ourselves on the cross with Jesus. That we could say, I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, that that hope, that joy, joy born out of sorrow and pain, would spill over into every part of our lives. That we would glorify and honor Jesus. We ask it in His precious name.